Tonight is the sixth and final Sunday in Lent, so that means next week is Easter. And I can't believe that, actually. It felt like we were crawling through Lent, and it's like, oh my goodness. I don't know how many of you were fasting extra or praying extra during Lent, or if you abstained from anything, but um, if you were, you probably felt in the first few weeks, like, we got how much longer of this? Uh, but we're actually there. We're in the final week. We've got an exciting um, week of worship services before us, which we'll talk about at the end of the service. But for now, we'll, right now, we'll look at Luke chapter 19. We'll be in verse 28. And um, yet, this is the sixth Sunday. So this is also known as Palm Sunday. This is Palm Sunday. All right. So, Lord, when you looked at your disciples and asked if they too were going to leave like the crowds, Peter said, to where else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We acknowledge that we cannot live by bread alone, but we need every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Because your scripture is breathed out for our benefit, so we ask that you teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us, so that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. In the mid-1800s, the U.S. government forcibly removed over 100,000 Native Americans from their homeland so that they could harvest the land to grow cotton. And those 100,000 Native Americans dispelled the path they took to their new homelands as they were scattered and redistributed, as known as, you know, the Trail of Tears. Not one of our most glorious moments in our history. And that sad exile was a hardship on them. Um, Tonight, Palm Sunday, when we look at Jesus entering Jerusalem, we actually have more of a trail of tears than we have the pomp and circumstance of a Caesar entering into his domain. Which is funny because we call this the triumphal entry. But there's nothing triumphal about it at least in the terms of the world. We call this the triumphal entry of Christ because we sense the irony of what's going on here. For the church, we live on the trail of tears more than we live in the palaces of Caesar. When we say this is the triumphal entry, we do not mean that our Caesar has come. He's simply a better version of the one in this world, or the powers of this world. No, we are acknowledging a completely upside-down, backward, inverted kingdom that does not at all operate like the kingdoms of this world. So that when we see Jesus coming down on the donkey to Jerusalem, triumphal entry? This is a triumph? What is he triumphing over? And in only what, five days from now? Good Friday. He will be crucified. What kind of a king is this? And in mockery, Pontius Pilate's going to put on the sign, this is the king of the Jews. It was mockery because he didn't like the Jews at all. And he wanted to make fun of them. This is the king they were waiting for. Look what happens when you mess with the Roman Empire. He can't take us down. Total embarrassment to the Jews, total embarrassment to the Christians. 
The Christians were made fun of for the fact that they worshipped a God that was crucified, a death sentence that was reserved for people who were not Roman citizens and typically for slaves in the empire. Can you imagine going around the world that crucified slaves and criminals and enemies of your empire and you went around saying, yep, that's who we worship, that's God. That's a bold statement. And you should be ready to be mocked and persecuted for such a statement. That's the reality of this world. And yet, we look at this weeping teacher, as they saw him at the moment, a weeping teacher coming on a young donkey, and somehow he's praised. Somehow we say this is the triumphal entry. Somehow we remember this every year as Palm Sunday. (laughs) Oh my, what an odd kingdom we are a part of. Let's take a closer look at this moment, at this event, so that we can get a sense of what's really going on here. So let's read it, and then we'll look at what's going on. So Luke 19, verse 28. Jesus, by the way, has just left Jericho. Um, he saw Zacchaeus in the tree, ate with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus' life was changed. He gave, he gave half his goods to the poor and restored fourfold those whom he had ripped off as a tax collector. So lives are being changed in the wake of his journey to the cross in Jerusalem. Then he tells a parable about the minas, uh, about those who, or the pounds, those who faithfully rule are given cities. And now in verse 28, he's approaching, he's approaching Jerusalem. By the way, from Jericho, which is below sea level, to Jerusalem, it's a 17-mile climb up a long, windy road. We're used to that, aren't we? Long, windy roads on the way up, about 17 miles-ish, anyways, right? I think it's 15, 14 miles. Um... Imagine walking that. That's what Jesus is doing with his disciples and the crowds, the pilgrims following him to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So we read in verse 28. And when he had said the last parable, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, think of those as your last pit stop, your last rest area before your destination. So when they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied. This is a young donkey, okay? On which no one has ever sat. So it's unbroken. This is a wild little, well, you've seen a little puppy or a little wild animal running around, chaotic. That's this little colt. (laughs) He wants that one. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, oh, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. That might sound odd. Just go and get the donkey. Why are you taking my animal? Because the Lord needs it. Oh, okay. So a lot of commentators said this was prearranged. Jesus had been to the town before and prearranged it. But I like what Justo Gonzalez said instead. He said, that kind of misses the point. The point is this, that there is a strange sense of an author controlling everything behind the scenes because we're entering on a week, the Passion Week of Christ, where it will appear he's a victim of all these circumstances and hatred and evil. But in reality, the author working everything behind the scenes shows that he's a victor in the midst of the suffering. It's perhaps the way we should keep that in mind. 
So they set Jesus on it. And in verse 36, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, you would obviously pave and make the way for a king as he came. So there, this is a makeshift moment of peasants, poor peasants from Galilee. This is our Lord. This is our king. He's going to go rule Jerusalem. We've got we to gotta pave the way. So they're throwing their cloaks in humiliation and making the path smooth for him. And as he was drawing near in verse 37, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. So he is, Bethage and Bethany are on the, um, the far side of the Mount of Olives. You don't see Jerusalem from there, but you go up, you hit the top of the Mount of Olives, and so when you hit the top, you see Jerusalem before you. And right in front of you would be the temple, because it was on the eastern edge of the wall. And you're, you're arriving from the Mount of Olives, you're arriving to the eastern gate. And so there it is. And now it's before him, and they're making their descent down the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And so as they were drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So their worship comes from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest is not in Psalm 118. It must have been a spontaneous tagline that they added. Or perhaps, it, for all we know, it was something that they were used to singing on Passover. They did, by the way, read Psalm 118 during the season of Passover. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. How dare they worship you as a Messiah? Do you know how dangerous this is? Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones will cry out. Maybe the rocks around them, or maybe even the stones in the temple. Wouldn't that be amazing? Oh, and by the way, we are, Peter says in chapter 2 of his first letter, we are living stones being formed together into the temple of the living God. We are the singing stones. We get to continue the praises of Palm Sunday. Rock concert. Is that what you're trying to get me to say? I was resisting it, but now you made me say it. It's a rock concert. All right. <laughs> Verse 41. I, just, I was like, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. And then someone just said it. So. Now, verse 41 is when it gets really odd. And Luke's the only one who includes this little bit in his narrative. He says, when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set, will, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So this is our sixth and final series in Lent, Cruciformed. Cruciformed is the cross-shaped life. We're calling this one Triumph Through Tears, because this is the odd shape that Luke gives us about the cruciformed life, is that the triumphal entry of Christ is climaxed, it's accented with the weeping prophet. 
that this is where his triumph leads. He goes to Jerusalem, the city he's apparently triumphantly, triumphantly entering, and he weeps. He cries. What kind of a king? What in the world is going on? Peter, do you see this? I'm trying not to. What are we following here? Who is this? And what is this strange scene before us? So, we're going to look at two things here in this passage. First, we're going to look at the glory of God returning. Then we're going to look at the glory of God weeping. The glory of God returning, the glory of God weeping. So, the glory of God returning. That's what's happening. That's what's happening here. Whether the pilgrims who are praising his name know it or not, this is the long-removed glory of God returning to Israel. Okay, so here we go. The departure happened in Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11. There's three verses in Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11 which give us a three-stage departure of the kings of, of God's glory. Now, let me set the context for you. Um, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the Garden of Eden was the place where God and humanity lived together in harmony. We beheld the glory of God. We walked in the glory of God. We were probably clothed in the glory of God. But we sinned and fell short of that glory and could no longer dwell in the presence therein, so we were out of Eden. But God, in his mercy, pursues humanity, chooses Israel, and says, Look, you build for me a tabernacle and a temple, and I, my glory, will dwell in your midst. And you will be my people to show the world that they can once again, like Eden, dwell with the glory of God. And so, he gives them the book of Leviticus, which is full of, it's basically a hand, a manual for how to live as a sinner before a glorious God. How to walk before his glory, so that you don't redo the whole sin and fall of the humankind again. Well, Israel doesn't obey the manual. They sin again and again and again. And finally, their idolatry and sin pushes, this is the way the Ezekiel describes it, they push his glory out of Israel. They push him out. And then they end up losing their kingdom and being scattered, uh, most of them going to Babylon. That's called the exile. So here's how Ezekiel tells it in Ezekiel 10 verse 4. He has these visions and he sees in 10 verse 4, the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. Translation, he saw the glory of God leaving the temple. The cherub were his living, moving throne. So the throne and the glory of God are coming out of the temple. They're on the move and Ezekiel sees it. Step 2 comes in chapter 10, verse 18. The glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. So now it's leaving the temple building. It's not just getting up to leave, it's now out of the house. And then later in verse um, 19, at the end, it says, And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. So his throne and the glory now leaving the building, leaving the temple. Now they're going to leave the city altogether. Ezekiel 11, verse 23. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. 
What mountain is that? Have you guys been listening? A little pop quiz. What mountain is east of the city? Mount of Olives. The very mountain Jesus is now cresting and coming down and weeping as people are praising him and Pharisees are saying, silence your disciples. What do we see here? We see that the glory of God is returning on Palm Sunday. The glory of God that left because Israel's sin pushed him out, left over the Mount of Olives and disappeared, is now hundreds of years later. What We're like, what, 600? Ezekiel would have seen this in like five, before 586 B.C. Now we're 30 A.D. here with Christ. This is, this is practically 600 years later, the glory of God, which had never, by the way, there's no record in the Old Testament that when Israel came back to their land and when they rebuilt the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah's efforts to bring the kingdom back together, and even under the Maccabean chaotic period when briefly Israel was able to rule themselves until the Romans came and took everything over, in none of these instances did we ever see the glory of God come and dwell in the temple in Jerusalem. When they build the tabernacle in Exodus, chapter 40, we see the cloud of the glory of God fill the tabernacle so that no one can go into it. When Solomon builds the permanent structure in Jerusalem, we see that the glory of God came in the cloud and filled the temple so that no one could enter it. But never do we see that in this temple in Jerusalem that Jesus sees, that the Jews see, God's glory is still departed because the people had not properly repented. They had not properly returned to God with their whole hearts, which God said they would have to do before he would return to them. Well, now, now, in the most strangest of images, that glory which departed over the Mount of Olives is coming back on this strange and quiet Palm Sunday. The glory of God coming back over the Mount of Olives in Jesus Christ. But who would have thought that he would have come riding a donkey and wiping tears from his eyes and uttering sobs in the midst of the psalms being sung around him? This is the glory of God returning? We knew it was coming. We didn't know what it would look like. Isaiah chapter... 52 verse 8. By the way, this is the, this is the part of Isaiah right before it talks and prophesies Jesus' sufferings. Right before the, that's Isaiah 53. So right before the prophecy of his sufferings, Isaiah 52 verse 8 says this. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Jerusalem. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. What did Isaiah foresee? He said, the Lord will return to Jerusalem. He will return to Zion. Here it's happening. Isaiah said that the people will be singing. The watchmen will be shouting for joy. Here are the disciples and the pilgrims around Jesus singing and shouting for joy because the moment is happening. The God of glory is returning to Jerusalem and they're singing and then the Pharisees say, stop this! but it must happen because the return is happening. Malachi 3 verse 1 told us more specifically, Malachi 3 1, that he would come to the temple. 
Behold, I send my messenger, that was John the Baptist, he will prepare the way before me, and then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Here it is. We know what happens after he marches in on the donkey to Jerusalem. Verse 45 of Luke 19 tells us he goes into the temple. And suddenly he will come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's the second to last chapter in the Old Testament. The promise that he's coming and he will appear in the temple. They knew that this was coming. They did not know that this is what the glory of God will look like. When you and I think of glory, we think of Caesar on the throne with his majestic crown and the soldiers around him guarding and the hordes of treasure that have built his palace. And at the snap of his finger, his armies go out and, and obliterate any rebellions. And all these people come and pay homage to him and give him gifts and kiss his feet and his rings and all that whatever stuff. That's what we imagine when we think of the king of glory. This is not how God defines the king of glory. Very, very different picture. So is this really a triumphant return of God, of his glory? Compare what we see with Jesus with two images people of the time would have been very familiar with. The first, right there in Jerusalem, they would have seen this just a few days ago, was Pontius Pilate entering Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate. We all know the name because of the Easter and and the passion stories of Jesus being tried by Pontius Pilate. But who was he? He was basically a governor over the region who represented Caesar, the Roman Empire, to the region. But Pilate hated his post. Nobody wanted to be assigned Jerusalem. Nobody liked this eastern edge of the empire. Nobody wanted to govern the volatile Jews who were ready at a snap of a finger to revolt against the Roman Empire. Pilate probably was put here so that he would, well, it's like your first dishwashing job or something. You don't do that for the rest of your life. You're hoping to move up or move out and move beyond. Pontius Pilate's here, either trying to move up or he's failed elsewhere and so he's being degraded down. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like the Jews at all. So, um, he didn't live in Jerusalem, even though this is where he's ruling. He lived at Caesarea uh, uh, Philippi, I think. One of the Caesareas on the coast. That was where he liked to live. It was nice by the beach, and he didn't have to deal with the, the weird stuff of Jerusalem. But, on Passover, he was obligated to go to Jerusalem. Because Passover was the day when Jerusalem swelled to a minimum of twice its size. You got a city already crowded, you double it in one festival. Okay, now you've got a ton of people outnumbering the Roman government, and they're all zealous because this is when God delivered us from Egypt. He's going to do it again. Every year they're hoping it's going to be the year. So Pontius Pilate kind of has to go to Jerusalem. So he's there, and what he does when he comes is he makes a huge display. Trumpets blaring, making sure that he's got an entire legion of soldiers marching, all of their armor on, the full decor, all the emblems and symbols of the Roman Empire, all these soldiers around him, and there he is on a white horse riding in, and he's making a statement as clear as possible. If you even think about causing a ruckus this week, no mercy from me. So there he marches in with pomp and circumstance, and he is marching on with the message of tyranny. I will shred anyone who does not submit. Hmm. 
couple days later, here comes Jesus on a donkey. Palm branches, no swords, no spears. Second image that they would have been familiar with is the triumphal entries of Roman generals. This was an actual thing. This is where the term, a triumphal entry, comes from. Is when a Roman general returned from a campaign in which they were successful, because they always were, um, the general would march into the city and the city was ready to greet him. The whole city. This is, imagine we see this when our sports teams win their championships. They always have their city parade. People line the streets and praise them and blah, blah, blah. And there's a trophy. The spoils of war. We've got the trophy. That's what the generals would do. They march into the city with all the celebration. It was a parade. Um, so they would, four specific things. They would ride in on a chariot pulled by white horses. They would parade the spoils of war behind them, usually captives and treasures they got from the places that they were victorious over. And especially the leaders of the other country, chained, humiliated, you're my slave now, pull you with a chain. They would wear the laurel crown. Laurel crown is like the crown that you make with green plants. And they would be hailed by the whole city. All the praises coming down. And then finally, when, the, when this march was done, it would culminate at the Temple of Jupiter, where they, the, the general would then go in, offer sacrifices of thanksgiving to Jupiter for their success. <laughs> well, we look at Jesus coming here, and this is a completely different picture. No white horses and chariot, a baby donkey. No laurel crown of green, fresh leaves, which was the symbol of victory. A crown of thorns would be worn in just a few days instead. No spoils of war being trailed behind him. Instead, sobs, weeping, tears. And and instead of the praises from the city, his disciples are praising him. But in a few days, these same voices would also be condemning him. When you put these images, these two Roman images, Pontius Pilate and the general's triumphal entry after war together, next to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, one has to raise the eyebrow and say, triumphal entry? This looks more like the pathetic, hastily put together celebration of a loser. What's going on? Now we look at the weeping in Luke 19. To top things off, now our triumphant ruler and king is sobbing over the city. What does that mean? What, what do we learn from Jesus sobbing here? What do we learn from his tears and his weeping? I'm sure we could put a lot of things together. But I would suggest to you these three simple ones that seem the most apparent to me. I would say, first of all, we see tears of mercy in his weeping over Jerusalem. We see tears of mercy. This is important to see. Because Jesus is looking out over them, and it says, verse 42, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies will set a barricade around you. And then he goes on and says that they're going to be destroyed, but in verse, the end of verse 44, all this is going to happen because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's looking upon them and he sees that they're so blinded by their self-centeredness, 
by their own ambitions, by their sin, that their hearts really still haven't changed, even with the glory of God returning to them, that he weeps over it. We must understand that God weeps tears of mercy over us, not clenched fists and a jaw and veins popping in the neck because he cannot believe you did it again. That is not his heart. We must see that Jesus comes in as the weeping prophet with mercy so that we do not keep ourselves hidden behind our fig leaves in the Garden of Eden like Adam and Eve did. Oh no, he's upset. I'm just going to kind of tiptoe around church. I'm just going to kind of maybe every now and then say a prayer, but I'm not going to engage with this God. He's too dreadful. He hates me. He's upset with me. Upset? In the sense of one weeping over those who are lost, he's upset, but he is not angry. God weeps for us and what sin is doing to us. It hurts us, but it pains him so much more. And I don't mean that when I lie, I just stab God and that's why he hurts. Oh, because now I'm going to feel like, oh, I did it to you. Sorry. I mean, he's looking at how my lie stabbed me. And that if I continue down this road, the destruction it will bring upon me, and he's weeping over the misery that I am choosing over his mercy. This is what we see in the passage. He's weeping because the direction Israel's going is going to bring about their own destruction. He's not saying, well, because you didn't give me the triumphal entry I deserve, because you didn't do it better than Pontius Pilate got or the Roman generals, I'm going to crush you because you're not worthy. But that is the average human's concept of God. He is weeping because of the misery their path is bringing upon them. We must know Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, where God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. This is tears of mercy. Second, No, wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. When he says there, um, there's still tears of mercy. When he says there, you did not know the time of your visitation. This is so sad. Why did they not know the time of their visitation? Why did they not understand that this was the return of the glory of God to them? Because the Pharisees were so consumed with how do we protect what we have that they could not see what was happening in front of them. The cruciformed life is not concerned with protecting what I have. The cruciformed life is willing to open the arms on the cross and say, all right, God, I surrender. Even if I lose what I'm trying to hold on to, I trust that what you take will be resurrected into something bigger and better. But the Pharisees don't live a cruciformed life. They're the ones who will crucify Christ to keep the life that they have. Rome has given us religious liberties. Don't rock the boat. That's their attitude. Don't sing praises. If they find out that Jesus is gathering followers and they're calling him a Messiah, do you know what Pontius Pilate, who just marched in with his legion of soldiers, will do to us? Tell them to stop. They're ruining everything. 
Justo Gonzalez had a, a heart-gripping quote on this verse. This is what he said. They, the Pharisees, are so afraid of what Rome might do, they cannot see what God is doing. Brothers and sisters, are we blinded to what God is doing because we're so concerned about what culture might do? We're so concerned about what Congress might do? We're so concerned about what the coronavirus might do? We're so concerned about what our circumstances might do that we cannot see what God is doing? We must never overlook the small ways, seemingly small ways that God is working. We overlook the donkey and the riding in Jerusalem because it's not triumphal enough for us. And yet we're concerned because of the other things that are happening. And we don't recognize that the visitation is right here in our midst. God is marching in on the donkey every day of our life. (laughs) Maybe not coincidentally, Psalm 18 says, This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Because every day God is visiting us. Every day he's riding on the donkey in a triumphal entry. But we're so concerned with don't rock the boat, keep the status quo. I don't want to suffer, that we miss it all. These are tears of mercy. He hurts that they are so blind to what's going on. Second, these are tears of solidarity. Tears of solidarity. The mind-blowing moment when God comes and reveals himself in human flesh, and instead of always keeping cool and living kind of above what human low lives live, I'm going to come to them, but I'm not going to be one of them. He weeps. God was not sheltered from the hardships of life when he came to us. He came to be one with us so that we could be one with God. It's very, that is the gospel. God became man so that man could be reunited with God. So he had to be completely us so that every part of us could be reunited with God. That means he wept. He wept at his friend Lazarus's tomb. John eleven thirty five. We all know that shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. We see in Psalm thirty four that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. We see in Isaiah fifty three verse three. He foresaw that Christ would come and be despised and rejected by men, and he called him a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And now we see him here weeping. And then Hebrews 5, chapter 7, a verse not very well known, but it's such a graphic depiction of Christ. It says this, Hebrews 5, 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. With loud cries and tears he prayed. This is our weeping prophet. Of course, Jeremiah. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Seven times in the book of Jeremiah, there's laments where he's pouring out his anguish and saying, God, why didn't you just kill me at birth? He's so distressed. Then he writes the book of Lamentations about the downfall of Jerusalem. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet, weeping over his people. So is Christ. But then David. David, when Absalom, his son, takes the throne from him, David doesn't punch his son back. David takes the cruciformed life, and he gives up the throne. And it says in 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, that when David left the city of Jerusalem, it says, he went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. Interesting, huh? He went up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. 
and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. This is not the first time a king has wept on the Mount of Olives over Jerusalem. David weeping, leaving the throne, Christ weeping, coming to reclaim the throne. And then third, these are tears of mercy, these are tears of solidarity, but these are tears also of victory. Because, yep, the king is returning like David, but he's not coming to set up a normal kingdom. He's weeping because this is a different kingdom altogether. He's not coming to fight national enemies. He's coming to fight the human enemy, sin, death, the devil. And this is what it's going to look like. It's going to look like a king who weeps, a king who wears the crown of thorns, a king who is crucified and betrayed by the very voices that praised him. This is how the kingdom of God is set up. And this is also how it is entered. So how about us? How do we live a cruciformed life in light of Palm Sunday? By understanding that our triumph, this is why it's the triumphal entry of Christ, because it is a triumph. The tears are setting up a new kind of kingdom as he's about to take the cross and forever break the dark kingdoms of the world. Our triumph comes through tears. This is the way of the cross. The cruciformed life does not parade processions of praise in chariots drawn by white horses. That's not our way. Rather, the cruciformed life trods the trail of tears, weeping on the back of donkeys. So saddle up your donkey. This is our path. Christ is calling us to ride the trail of tears with him. So these are two ways we can do this. Two ways we can saddle our donkey and ride the trail of tears, triumph with our tears with Christ, weep with the weeping prophet. Two ways we can do this. Uh, the cruciform life weeps over our sin through constant confession. This is what it looks like. Weeping. Okay, let's pause. If you're like me, I don't cry very easily. You might be like, okay, tears, weeping, like, cool, for emotional folk. I'm like, stoic. I'm rock solid. I hold things together when things go down. Your weeping of heart is a posture of heart, more than we're we asking for literal tears. You can, you can mock tears, and then you can make a show of it, and you might as well be doing the pomp and circumstance of Caesar than actually walking with Christ at that point. There's a condition of the heart that we're looking for. So when I say that the cruciform weep over their sins through constant confession, I don't mean you, all, you have to be in your closet sobbing, hoping nobody hears you. That may come to that. If God gives you the gift of sobbing and tears, use them. Don't hold them back. These are good for you. But you don't have to fabricate these. Get into a place where your heart is broken over what's happening. Here's what we're looking for. We're looking for the concept. You never hear this today. It's not popular. You, it's the concept of contrition. Contrition. Contrition is like what the psalmist says. Give me a contrite heart, O Lord. A heart that's broken over what I've been through and what I've done. Because here is what Psalm 51 verse 17 says. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. This is what he's looking for. 
a broken and contrite heart. But so we, we get here by constantly confessing our sin. Psalm 51 verse 3. We prayed this at our confession at 4 o'clock. Psalm 51 verse 3. My sin is ever before me. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. What does David do? David constantly puts before his life his failures, lest he get a big head and supersede himself above God. Lest pride creeps into his heart like, ooh, I did pretty well with that kingdom move right there. He keeps his sins before. That's how he can take the cruciform life when Absalom takes over. David doesn't get proud and say, oh yeah. David takes the the path of contrition, the path of tears, because he has kept the mistakes he's lived before him. And he understands that I am but dust, and to dust I will return. It's by the Lord's mercies that I'm even still alive. If he takes my crown today, he takes my crown. And here's the moment. And we praise David's symbolic death and resurrection back to the throne because this is the way of Christ. We keep our sins before us. It's constant confession. Joel chapter 2 verse 12. Yet now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. But how? With fasting? With weeping? With mourning? What does he mean by weeping and mourning? Put on a show? No. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments. There's nothing showy about confession of sin. It is the heart bleeding and being ripped open because of what we have done to ourselves in our sin and the way we have betrayed the one who's given everything for us. James 4, verse 8 and 9 tells us to cleanse our hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. You're like, how, James? I want to be pure. Then he says the next verse, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is not a season, brothers and sisters, of we're on top of the world and we're ruling and everything's great. Praise God when things are great. And that's why we believe in having a time of thanking him in our prayer service. Because we understand that these are his mercies and his blessings and we thank him for them. Because really, we're at a place where we ought to be recognizing constantly how much we've failed. Hallelujah is for later. Morning is for now. And it must be constant confession, because if we give light-hearted confession, it can be dangerous and delusional. Light-hearted and infrequent. Just say every now and then, like, yeah, Lord, I've been a pretty bad boy. Um, sorry about that. Thank you, though, for your grace. Amen. Pretty bad boy. Sorry about that. How, are you really sorry about that? Or are you just, like, taking forgiveness for granted? Here's what St. John of Sinai said about it. Really graphic. He he had the greatest lines because he was so graphic in his his teachings. He said, um, "He who mourns sometimes and indulges in luxury sometimes is like one who stones the dog of sensuality with bread." It was a dog stoned the dog with bread. Then he says, "In appearance, he is driving the dog away." In fact, he's encouraging it to be constantly with him. So the infre he said, sometimes weeping and sometimes celebrating. You're kind of just like, yeah, I feel like I'm sorry. I feel like life's good. If we're not consistently confessing and weeping our sins before God, you're just going to be throwing bread at the devil. And he's going to get closer and closer. That's, that's the way he put it. To keep our confession constant. If it's frequent and constant, then we reap two benefits. First, frequent and constant confession gives us purity. 
there's a um, there's a there's a prayer in the Orthodox Church, which I stumbled upon, and it was just beautiful. Here it is. Grant me tears to wash the filth from my heart. What a prayer. So concise. Grant me tears to wash the filth from my heart. How different that is than, Lord, I'm sorry about all those things, and then we go back to life as normal. I'm not asking, nor is God asking, that we live in this droopy, weary life. Oh, Lord, we're miserable wretches all the time. Yes, we celebrate, and we understand laughter, and we enjoy life, but underneath all of this is a never-ending recognition that our sin is before us and who we truly are without the mercies of Christ. Grant me tears to wash the filth from my heart. This then leads to the second benefit of frequent confession, and that's humility. The tears will then wash the log out of our eye so that we don't get obsessed over the speck in our brother or sister's eye. Humility. Um, we've been praying every at the end of our prayer service throughout Lent. We've been praying this. It comes from St. Ephraim of Syria, um, but there's a line in it, and it says, O Lord and King, grant me to see my own faults and let me not judge my brother, for blessed are you into ages of ages. Grant me to see my own faults. This is part of confession. This is why we confess. We don't confess to be forgiven. We confess to be purified and humbled. This is why we confess. We're putting ourselves in our proper posture. Second, so the cruciformed weep over their sins through constant confession. Second, the cruciformed weep over the world. As we weep over our own sins and see that we are no higher than anybody else, we can then freely weep over Jerusalem and over our city and our communities and the world. And oh, that we had this. Oh, that the church was a weeping Jeremiah, a weeping Christ, rather than an angry preaching, ang- uh, uh, an angry preacher. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, just angry and telling what everyone's doing wrong and why our nation is going to hell in a handbasket. We say a lot of that, and great, yes, we've got great insight in what's going on, but brothers and sisters, the world doesn't need the angry preacher, it needs the weeping prophet. It doesn't need the whipping preacher. That's the word I was looking for. It needs the weeping prophet. We're so quick to grab the whip and say, see, come to the church, ye forgiven, we've got the message. And Christ instead comes to Jerusalem with tears. Yup, they killed him. This is the cruciformed way. This is what the world needs as a church that is so humbled because of our constant confession that we're crying that others don't know the great mercy that we know. So we must remember the great famous verse, John 3. No, the verse after that. What is it? Two people know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We know this. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So get with it! But then Jesus says, or Jesus, yeah, I think Jesus is still speaking that verse. It's debated in the scholars if it's John or Jesus. But for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Not to condemn. This is what This is the place of the weeping prophet. This, brothers and sisters, is the church's role in the world. We are Christ riding the donkey. We are Christ weeping for the lost around us because we've properly wept for ourselves as well. 
So let's ride donkeys with Jesus, weeping over our sins and weeping over the world's sins. Let's weep now that we may sing hallelujah at the resurrection. For then God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Revelation 21 verse 4. Because the kingdom of God triumphs, not in weapons, not in tyranny, not in whipping, but in tears and weeping. Father, grant us, grant us tears to wash the filth from our hearts.